Hi, I'm Michael. I'm a smallish business owner, decent improv artist, a bit manic, way insecure, and extremely neurotic. I'm a TV host and your host right now for what we call the Second Scene Podcast. It's a dweebs global production where we interview people you know about things that they're not necessarily known for. I'm here today with Darren Zook. He is a professor of political science and international studies at UC Berkeley. He was the first recipient of the UC Berkeley's Golden Apple Award, which is given to the best professor on campus as chosen by the students, which sounds like a lot of students wanted an, an A there, I'm guessing. <laughs> and his, uh, his second scene has taken him from India to North Korea twice to the stage of TEDx, speaks a large multitude of languages as an author, very funny, and I, I've only scratched the surface. So thank you very much for joining us, Darren. Uh, My pleasure. Glad to be here. So I'll, I'll start out easy. Where are you from? Uh, always a complicated question. Nothing's easy with me. Born in Ohio, so I have Midwestern roots. Uh, father was in the military, so moved around a lot. Uh, spent a little time in Texas for undergrad and grad. And then I came to California and realized this was kind of the place I probably should have been right from the start. So I, I consider myself kind of Californian at heart. Been there for long enough at this point. Yeah, just, you know, it's just, it's, it suits me well in terms of, you know, I live in the Bay Area, so the weather's great. Uh, you know, the things I like to do uh, that you can't do, say, in the middle of an Ohio winter when it's 20 below zero, you know, it's just somehow, somehow it seems to suit me well. So this is what I call home for now. I got you. What did, what did your parents do that, that had you moving around so much? So my father was, was a career military. And, you know, so in the military, you move around every yeah, usually every three years. So you just never have a place where you can you can stay at one time. And then he uh, eventually retired, which is um, when I when I moved to Texas, I was there for the last part of high school and then stayed there for for my undergraduate studies. Um, didn't really fit well in Texas. It's way too hot for me, among other things. But um, you know, just I, most of my family still lives in Ohio. I'm the only one in California. So uh, I'm the weird one who came out all the way to the West Coast and decided to stay put. Okay, okay. Yeah, California is one place I've, I've never lived. I've done the whole East Coast and I kind of wish I had tried San Francisco or, or somewhere in the West Coast for a little bit, but never, never gave myself that opportunity, unfortunately. Yeah, well, I, I've, so, I've spent time in the East Coast, but you know, it's, it's everybody, you know, everybody finds the place where you're, you kind of feel like, okay, the, play, the groove of this place and my groove kind of feel like they, they mesh well. And so it's like, all right, I'll stay here for a bit. So can't, I can't think of any place else I'd be, I'd be moving, at least not within the United States. Got you. Got you. Yeah, it does change over time. New York was my groove for a while. And then it, I go back and visit there and it's so noisy and there's so much going on. Yeah. Uh, and I never thought yeah. I would have said that when I lived there. Yeah. So how long, how long have you been teaching at UC Berkeley? Uh, let's see. Uh, this, is, this is actually hard to say because my sense of time is so screwed up, but I've actually been at UC Berkeley for 19 years. Oh, yeah. Wow. I kind of feel like I'm still 19. That's why it's hard to say. But anyway, so yeah, 19 years. Well, that's a good thing. I want to I yeah. feel like I'm 19 all the time. <laughs> what's, what's, <laughs> what's kept you teaching? What do you enjoy about teaching the most? I mean, there are several things. I mean, I, I'm one of those, the, the lucky people that for some reason I, I knew when I was really even young, I, I just love to learn. And I was, you know, I, I, when you get to the point where you're thinking of, you know, what do you want to do with your life? I'm like, you know, is there a job where they teach you to learn new stuff? And it turns out there is, it's being a professor. And so I kind of, it just, it just seemed like a natural fit to me to want to go into higher education, 
Um, I kind of feel like education is, is, I often refer to education as the most powerful form of activism. So it's for me, you know, kind of being in this position and being in a classroom is, is, isn't just about, you know, this is my job or something. I feel, I feel like, you know, every day you're kind of, you know, you're kind of fighting the good fight and you're, and you're, you know, you've got these wonderful students who they're trying to find their way and, you know, you hope you're helping them a little bit, maybe do that. And, you know, I will always admit, I, I also learn from my students. And so I just kind of feel like, um, I feel really lucky to have a job where I've, I've never once woken up and said, I don't want to go to work today. Uh, that, that's pretty lucky. That's pretty lucky. Yeah. So a, a lot of us take our second scenes because our first scenes aren't what we want to wake up and do every day. <laughs> yeah. What's up with this golden apple? How did this, how did this come to be? Uh, well, the golden apple was, it, it's, by the way, it's no longer an award at Berkeley because it was, uh, it, it, it like many things at Berkeley, it became bogged down in politics, but at least uh, the first year they had it. Um, what was happening is, is, you know, the university has its own teaching awards and, you know, students were kind of saying, you know, you're, 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 you're choosing all these people and they, you know, we're not sure why they're being chosen. So maybe we want to choose one of our own. So it was a campus-wide vote. I had no idea that they even had, had invented this award. And then I got an email one day saying, you know, congratulations, you won the Golden Apple. You're the first recipient of the Golden Apple Award. And I was like, great, I have no idea what that is. And uh, then they told me, and you just, you know, you have those moments where, you know, when you're teaching, you don't think about it. You don't think, you know, am I popular? You don't think, you know, how is it? You just do your best. And then suddenly somebody says, you know, you were chosen as the, you know, it's the best professor on campus by the student body. And you're kind of like, wow, you know, so it, it was, it was a wonderful experience. And, uh, you know, I'm still to this day, I'm, I'm kind of, it was just kind of that moment of I, maybe I'm doing something right. And that always feels good. Sounds like you have, you have quite the reputation around online. So I know you're a big traveler. How do you encourage the students to, to get around the world? You know, it, it's so if students can do so, I understand travel is something that not everyone can afford. I think it's, a, I think it's, you know, just a life building experience. Even if you can't travel internationally, just to kind of, you know, if you live in the Bay area, spend some time in the central Valley, just, you know, meet different people. Um, if you can travel internationally, uh, especially if you can go to a place, for instance, where the language that's spoken is not the language you speak um, as your, as your native tongue. Um, I think the challenge of being in a just, a total zone of discomfort and having to work your way towards comfort is something that everyone should have to experience because it's just, it, it gives you so much appreciation for, you know, what other people go to, for instance, if they say move to the United States, you know, it's so easy to say, well, you know, learn English and assimilate. It's like, why don't you travel to Bolivia and see how easy it is, you know, if you don't know a word of Spanish and have no idea, you know, how Bolivia works, you know, things like that. So, I always encourage them. I said, if you can do study abroad, you know, take a trip, anything like that, please do it. Um, and if they can't, you know, I, I, I love to give them suggestions about how you can at least travel, you know, kind of using an interesting combination of Google Maps and a few other things where you can at least try to get an experience of what the world's like out there. But I do think, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of transformed or at least made me the person I am. So I always encourage others to, to do that as well. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. I, and I love traveling and making myself uncomfortable. I, uh, I, I showed up in Spain to surprise my wife. My wife's from Spain. And I got to the airport, and this was years ago. I didn't have a phone working, didn't know where I was, didn't know how to get anywhere. But uh, yeah. the challenge of finding her father's house, it was, uh, I enjoyed it. <laughs> I enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, and I, then I you like, finally find I it, like and you're like, I did this. I did this. It was like a quest, you know? 
Completely. Oh, I, I have a success. It was a success story in the end. So w- what courses do you teach at, at UC Berkeley right now? Well, that really depends on the semester. Uh, let's see. I, I usually, teach, I, I do a lot of region-based classes. You know, one of the reasons I travel because I work in different different areas. And so I've done classes on like Southeast Asia, South Asia, uh, what's called Northeast Asia, which is kind of, you know, China, Japan, South Korea, North Korea, that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm doing a new class called the Nordic Lands in the spring semester. Um, I also do stuff on international law and human rights. And let's see, my miss. Oh, uh, did a class um, again. Ran into the, the the great politics of the university. Uh, taught a class for a while called the politics of music, which was um, was really great fun. But uh, you know, for reasons I won't go into, um, I haven't taught it in a while. But um, at some point, I'm hoping to turn it into a book, or you know, who knows, maybe a Netflix series or something. We'll see how that goes. Okay. What was it? What was the? What was it about? What was the the basics of it? Part of it was, of course, what you would think the politics of music would be. You take you take musicians who have you know through their music articulated a political stance. Uh, musicians who have been assassinated by governments because they were just so powerful in the in the message they had against, say. Uh, an existing regime, you know, Victor Hara in Chile, who was who was one of the first people to be uh, tortured and killed after the the coup that brought Augusto Pinochet to power in 1973. Um, I've I've been listening, in fact, over the last few months to the to all the works of Fela Kuti, who was you know kind of the 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 person who originated Afro pop. But his music is just nothing but this just relentless kind of pro-people, pro-democracy message. It's really just amazing stuff. So there was that. There's also stuff like you know, censorship, you know, where, where in the world can you sing what you want to sing? Where in the world can't you sing that? Uh, do half a lecture on North Korean pop music, which yes, actually exists. So um, just, you know, all sorts of things like that, to get, you know, kind of a world tour, case studies from all around the world, and uh, also got to share just some amazing music uh, with all the students in the class. I got, there's so much I want to ask you about in there. Um, <laughs> I, guess, I guess your music background, I know a lot of what you do does focus around music so i have always been even when i was really really young uh, i've just always been musically minded um you know i got my my first guitar i think when i was five and just kind of sat down and just kind of just kind of felt comfortable right from the start and you know in in many ways that's that's always been my other thing Uh, even if it's just you know me you know, whatever, practicing, writing a new song, or just kind of, you know, learning a new instrument or something like that. I mean, music is, is always, it's usually the way that I end my, my academia day. It's like when, it, when, when I break out the music, any kind of musical instrument, uh, suddenly I feel like my day is now officially over in this part, and now it's moving over to this part. Kind of to go back to your language, your latest, your latest song is in Spanish, right? Yes, it is. Yes, that was, and that was, you know, it was a very fun experience, uh, experiment, I should say. And it's just because, you know, you, you might ask the question like, you know, well, why is it when I sat down that when I, when I was thinking of just words, the, the first line that came out was in Spanish, which is not my, you know, my native language. And, um, you know, somebody might say, well, why is that? And then I, the answer I always give is, you know, I no more know why I thought in Spanish in that moment than I know why the first chord I played when I thought of the music was a C minor. You know, it's just kind of like something comes out and you don't know where it comes from, which is what I love about, you know, music and and just the whole 
element of creativity. It's just such a mystery. It's like, you, you, you know, things come out and you're like, I don't know where that came from, but this is fun. So, uh, yeah. So that, so that most recent music project along with the music video became, uh, um, a, a very fun project of mine gives me gives me a chance to exercise the musical part of my brain as well as the language part of my brain. What what was the latest music video about? What was the what was the songs? Theme? So you know, I, I just had this idea of writing something just a you know kind of a social justice. You know, everything seems so so dreary these days, and I was like, let me let me just write something that's just about you know let's make the world a better place. Just, you know, just something as simple as that. That's, that was the, the original thought. And then, you know, these, I wrote, I scribbled down some lyrics. I had an idea for the music. I started putting them together and then I was, I pushed it one step further, which is I, I made it into like a miniature story. And, you know, it's not too far from home. The story was about this professor. Imagine that uh, kind of somewhere in, in like, you know, somewhere in a South American rainforest, kind of living in exile, who decides, you know, he's going he's gonna to perform the song. He's going to invite all, all the people he knows to come together and kind of start this, this global movement. And uh, that was, you know, that's what happened. And, and I made a music video for it with a budget of about zero dollars. And, uh, but it was, it was fun to make. <laughs> you, you talk a lot about diversity and, uh, um, activism. Uh, I was watching your mini series on diversity and it, it just really made me think and really brought it to a different angle. Um, there's a lot of, a lot of the, the passive versus active diversity. And I think what we mainly do is passive versus active. Yeah. If you want to kind of go into that a little bit. Sure. I mean, it, it's, I mean, that was also, you know, a labor of love that was, you know, it, it's been frustrating because it's very hard to get that, that message out there. Um, you know, people look at what's happening in the country right now and you know, like, you know, where did this come from? And for me, the answer is actually pretty simple. And this is going to sound negative, but I don't mean it negatively. What I, what I see, you know, with things like the protests, um, the continued, you know, deaths of, of African-American men in, in, in police custody is a failure of diversity. And what I mean by that is it means we have been doing diversity wrong all along. Um, you know, universities, uh, you know, do things like, you know, diversity becomes a photo op, right? It's like, oh, we need more of X racial group in this picture, or we need more of this. And it's like, the problem is, if you watch the miniseries, you'll know this. The problem is, is, is that what we don't have is we have no mutual understanding. We just have a lot of different people in the same place. And without the understanding, you're never going to be able to effectively address Racism. You're not going to have Black Lives Matter. It's not going to matter because people don't develop the empathy that understanding brings. So you can say the slogan, but you're not going to you're not going to walk in someone else's shoes until you try to understand it. So, um, you know, I've been working on that. I teach. I teach a. Um, I'm doing a seminar this semester actually on, on diversity. Um, and you know, the, there's there's two parts to it. The one of which is of course the active versus passive. Active being the part where we actively seek to understand what is different from ourselves goes back to my earlier comment about why travel is so important. But there's also an element to this, which is that, you know, my almost all of my research has been international. And so I think there's a tendency among a lot of people in the United States to look at American problems without any comparative barometer. And so it's like, it's easy to say, oh, you know, racism in America is the worst in the world. It's just terrible. It's just the worst country. It's like, have you been elsewhere? Have you been elsewhere to see how it plays out, you know, in other countries? And once you do that, it doesn't, you know, you don't 
reach the conclusion that says, oh, then racism isn't so bad in America. You simply say, oh, this is a global problem, not a national one. So that in a nutshell was kind of where, where that whole project came from. I got you. I got you. Es essentially, we've just thrown a whole bunch of different types of people into a ball and said, hey, get along and not helped, not helped any yeah. of them understand what the other groups might have gone through or, or their history or... Um, yeah, I mean, you, you can't you can't get along with people that you don't understand. And so the idea is, is and, and, you know, the other thing that happens and, and you know, college campuses are, are as guilty of this as anything is you you end up with uh, what, what I refer to. I think I do. I, I said this in my mini series is, is you end up with these enclaves because you get all these different people together. But if you look closely, they begin to kind of you kind of find your own group and then you stop interacting and it's like, oh, you know, we have this idea of, you know, oh, they're, you know, they're celebrating diversity. That's that group over there. It's like, well, what do you know about that group over there? It's like, well, that's not my group. This is my group. So, you know, it's, it's like we see diversity, but it's like, actually, nothing's really happening. I think the metaphor I have in my miniseries is we have all the engine parts laid out, but we don't have an engine. Nothing runs. It's just we see the engine parts, but we have to actually put it together for this to go somewhere. What, what can I do? It's just a... Uh... One, one single guy walking around. What? I mean, it's, it's interesting. There is stuff. I mean, in fact, you've already, what we talked about earlier is exactly an example of this. Like, you know, you trying to find, um, what do you say? Was, you, was it your father's house, your father-in-law's house in Spain? Um, my father-in-law's house, correct. You trying to do that is in many ways the best metaphor for what you can continue to do, right? It's like, we have to put ourselves in, in an uncomfortable situation. We have to basically begin to interact with people who think differently from our own, who have a different life experience. And we have to do what we can do to come to terms with that and to understand that. You know, I, I've said in, the, in that mini series that diversity is kind of like a foreign language for that, for that exactly that reason. So um, if, you, if you kind of live your life in the way that you had that, that one epic quest, which you succeeded at, don't forget, um, <laughs> if you, you know, if we did that more often, and it's, you know, it's, it's very important, this is, this is very important. And if those other groups have to be equally welcoming of us, right, you can't say, hey, you know, you, you're not, you don't belong in this group. The idea is, you know, if you want to, if you want to, you know, be in this group, then you welcome in and I want to go into your group and see how things are over there. You know, if we did more of that, as opposed to more, you know, posing for pictures that represent diversity, um, I don't think we'd have, you know, what happened to George Floyd. I don't think we'd have riots all over the country right now. I don't think we'd have any of that because we'd be spending our time, you know, getting along. I don't, I don't know if I'm right or wrong about this, but sometimes I feel like a lot of us sit back and we just assume oh, they don't want me in their group. Like that's, that's a group I don't belong or they, you know, they, if I will, they wouldn't, they wouldn't want me to be a part of it. Uh, I'm sure it's a wrong assumption often, but. No, I know actually it's a, it's a right assumption, but it's a right assumption because again, that's where diversity has failed, right? Um, we, we have that mistrust, you know, you have these groups that are like, wait a minute, you know, I don't, I don't know if I want you in my group. You know, I've, I've had students, uh, you know, a handful of students who have either taken my class or I've just spoken with who have tried this and have, you know, come to my office hours or just sent me an email and said, you know, it's been very disillusioning because, um, you know, I, I really have always, all my life, I, you know, I've, I've wanted to, you know, I love this kind of music or I've loved this. And then I went to, I went to that group and they said, hey, you know, find your own kind. You know, you're not welcome here. And, you know, so both sides of the equation are the ones who are failing diversity. It's like we have to kind of go in search of what we, what's different from us. But other people have to be at least um, 
open to that, receptive to it. And I think they would be if we had been approaching diversity differently right from the start. Unfortunately, it's a byproduct of this idea that we, the diversity is the simultaneous separate existence of different identity groups as opposed to this idea of the, the kind of, you know, constructive understanding of difference between ourselves. Yeah, it's, a, it's such a poignant subject right now. Uh, another part of the video you talked about uh, fixing ignorance. I guess I have, I have two questions off of that one. How do I know if I'm ignorant? And then how do I fix somebody if I know they're ignorant? <laughs> I mean, it's easy for me to, easier for me to say that because as I said earlier, I mean, how do I see education? Why do I do what I do? I see education to me is the most powerful form of activism. Now, granted, I'm a professor, so I deal with the world of formal education, but there are different kinds of education, and one of the most powerful forms of education is is peer to peer, right? Person to person. Uh, and I do this even in my classes. It's like you know, after a while, it's like okay, I've lectured long enough. Maybe it's time for you to talk amongst yourselves uh, and and see you know see what you can learn from each other. And you know that goes back to the idea of you know first of all how do, well how do I know if I'm ignorant? Well, ignorant really just means it, there's something that we don't know. There's something is there something we could know that would make things better and you know, anything we can understand about what separates us, you know, is, is one more barrier that's basically dissolved through knowledge. And so, you know, it's the art of, of, you know, learning how to understand what we don't know and also learning how to listen. You know, if you, if you look at these, you know, the, the images of the, the protests and the counter protests, what do you see? You see people who are doing nothing but shouting at each other, right? You, there, there is zero dialogue. It's basically, you're wrong, no, you're wrong, no, you're wrong. And there's this point where it's like, you know what, maybe we should stop shouting. Maybe we should kind of step back and say, you know what, I'm willing to listen. If you're willing to listen and return after you you know, after you talk to me, I'll talk to you. Um, and there's always gonna be some people where we can't do that. I mean, there's gonna be, but you know, in, in my experience, you know, if you approach someone with respect and you open a, um, and you open a discussion, no matter how differently they think from you, um, I've, I've been, you know, 99% successful at holding what I would call very, very good discussions. And people become surprisingly open, even to admitting, you know, that they don't know something. Instead of, you know, it starts off with, well, this group is stupid. And then five minutes later, they're like, you know, I didn't really know anything about them. And now that I understand that, you know, maybe I can rethink things. So it is possible. Gotcha. Yeah. It's, it's a shame that uh, so much of it, though, is what we see. It's just, uh, it's just butting heads. And it's uh, yeah. people thinking they know everything and have nothing to learn or or get from the other, yeah. the other side of the other person. So yes. I, I highly recommend, yeah. yes, I highly recommend people check out your miniseries. Uh, it's great. I really liked your artist rendering of nothing. There's just the blank screen. <laughs> yes, well, I, I do appreciate I that, yes. <laughs> I did, I did. That's something I can draw. I'm like, I can draw that. I can, I can, yeah. <laughs> I can draw an interpretation of nothing. <laughs> Good. So I wanted to get back to, uh, to some of your travels and you would, uh, mentions uh, you do a lot of study of places that are very oppressive. North Korea might be one of the, one of the most, um, but I'm sure that you might have well, some other we'll stories. You know, there are plenty of stories there. I mean, I would call North Korea, you know, if somebody said, how would you describe North Korea? I would say uh, closed, inaccessible, right? Um, and, you know, one of the reasons I went to North Korea is, you know, it, obviously there's just that, I mean, I do work, you know, I do research in Asia. And of course, you're kind of, there's a point where you're like, okay, I've been in South Korea, China, Taiwan, Japan, what's going on in North Korea? And 
you know, there's a whole cottage industry of people who write about North Korea. And we have all these, these, you know, ideas of what North Korea is. And I was like, you know what, I just need to go. And um, I was, I was one of the first Americans in after they lifted the ban on Americans going to North Korea in 2009. And I was there all of, you know, probably 10 minutes before you have this realization that everything I had read, every, every video I had seen got it wrong. And by that, I don't mean, you know, they all said it was oppressive, but it turns out, no, it was, it was utopia. Uh, it's just that, you know, you had, you know, and by the way, if, if you watch so many videos on North Korea, they almost always start with this, you know, exclusive access line. No, <laughs> um, it's, it's, it gets viewers, but it's like, you know, all you've seen is everything else that everyone else has seen as well. Um, but, you know, there, there's just no substitute, even, even though I can't, you know, it's against the law for foreigners to speak with North Koreans directly. Uh, and you know that when you're North Korea, because when you're walking down the sidewalk with your government minders, people are just jumping out of the way because they're afraid you're going to try to talk to them, <laughs> um, which is a weird experience. But, um, mm-hmm. I mean, the reality is, if, if you ask me how it was, it was a relatively, it was, it was actually, it was a very pleasant trip. It was, you know, I, I learned a great deal. You learn, you, you talk with people. And, you, you know, once they figure out you're genuinely curious, right, you're not just, you're not asking dumb questions. You know, I, I, I told my government minders, I said, you know, I'm, I'm really curious, you know, how does the law, I'm, I'm very interested in questions of justice. So I was like, well, how does the legal system work here? And had great discussions with them. Um, and, you know, we, we, we had an evening of all things, you know, I, I, so little thing about North Korea. So when you go to North Korea, every evening, they give you a free beer. It's not really free, you prepay for it, but they tell you it's free. Uh, and by the way, it's good beer. Um, okay. <laughs> and I would sit down with my government minders and we would have this beer. And, um, you know, I, one evening I was just like, you know, well, what do North Koreans do? Do, I, do you have a sense of humor? Do you tell jokes? And suddenly, you know, we go on this whole conversation about North Korean jokes, which you don't usually get to talk about. Um, you know, are, are there problems in North Korea? Are there things that, you know, we should be concerned about? Absolutely. But um, you, you come away with a very different appreciation for, first of all, what it's like to live in North Korea and, and also, um, you know, how much work it would take. If people talk about North and South Korea kind of, you know, reconciling and emerging as one country. And, just, and when I left there on my first trip, I was just like, that's, that's going to take far more work than anybody I think appreciates. But, you know, it was, it was, it was a good experience. I, I learned an incredible amount even got enough material to write a few academic papers about my travels. So glad I did it. It's, it's, it's illegal for Americans to go now. So I'm glad I went when I did. You've traveled a lot. Is there, are there any other places that we wouldn't think of that are similar to North Korea in that way or? That are similar to North Korea in that way. Let's see. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. Yeah. North Korea is definitely in, in its own category. There's, there's no place I have been uh, like being in North Korea. That's, you know, so I can't compare that to anything. Um, I think one of my one of my favorite examples of of just how differently people think. I was in um, the Faroe Islands. It was I think it was actually the last trip I took. Yeah, before the pandemic hit, I was in the Faroe Islands um, on my way to Greenland, and just had this moment. Uh, I, I was I was happened to be talking with an Australian diplomat, and I was just kind of looking around, and I just had a moment. I was like. I could live here, you know, and I rarely, usually I love visiting places, but I was like, this is a special place and I could live here. And as I was thinking that in the Faroe Islands, 
this Australian diplomat says, just looks at me and he goes, oh, who would live here? What a nightmare. And I was just like, you know, just like completely different ideas of what constitutes, you know, a place you'd, you'd, you'd love to be. So uh, I love those kinds of moments. Well, fascinating. I've, uh, I've always had an urge to, to, to go to North Korea and, and travel around like that, but it's probably not in my cards. Yeah. Um, yeah. Here's one unexpected thing about North Korea. It's, it's in terms of environment, it's beautiful because it, it's so much of it is undeveloped that you just get beautiful green countryside. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. And at night you can see the stars. I'm assuming there's not a lot of light <laughs> yeah. either. That, that is exactly <laughs> correct. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I was watching on your website, I was, I was surfing around and I really liked your video about the peace sign and semaphores. I, I didn't completely grasp what a semaphore was, but I, I, is YMCA the song? Are those semaphores or? That's a good, I don't think, that's a great question. I think YMCA is not truly a semaphore because what they're actually doing is trying to spell out the letters. Like, isn't that like Y, M? C, I think so, yes. Something like, so that's, they're trying to spell the English letters. Uh, semaphore is, is the language that was invented for communication uh, over a distance, which can be, it's usually by sea, where it's, you know, before we had, you know, smartphones and things, uh, if you had a, if, if you were a ship that was, you know, say a certain distance offshore and you were trying to communicate with someone on land and you had, you at least had a pair of, say, binoculars or a, or a you know, magnifying glass or a telescope, I should say. Um, basically you had, you had flags that would accentuate your movements and then the entire alphabet letters and numbers was basically a series of poses, right? And so it's, it's like Morse code. If you knew, every sailor had to know it. So, you know, if the person was saying, you know, rocky seas, you can't land here, then you didn't get too close to shore and you turned around or something like that. So that was, the, that was where semaphore came from. Uh, and it just, I don't, I, I don't know why, but the, the person who invented the peace sign, at least the peace sign that we know of with the, you know, the circle and the line, that's just an abstraction, as I said in the video, of, of the two letters N and D, which uh, stood for nuclear disarmament. And that's how we got to the peace sign as we know it. So uh, I'm glad you watched that. But I found that really, really fascinating that uh, I had no idea that's where it came from until I started doing some research on it. No, it was very fascinating. I, I, I enjoyed that. I was, uh, semaphores, I wonder, it reminds, it's like a whole body uh, sign language yeah. in a way. You see people do sign language, they get pretty animated. I, yeah. I'd imagine yeah. if you're doing it I a don't lot. Know if, <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if there's like super animated semaphore. Uh, I'm not sure that would go over well in like the naval or, you know, ship environment, but I suppose, you know, I suppose it could happen. I see a sport in the making. It could be. Uh... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Full, full contact semaphore. Um, but, I'm, but as I said earlier, I'm, I'm just interested in, in, in language. Uh, and for instance, I was in the Canary Islands and, and came across, a, you know, because, you know, it, it's a challenge. How do you communicate? How do you communicate across a distance versus, you know, one on one? And so the Canary Islands has a very interesting language that consists only of whistles, which is basically their version of semaphore, because you have seven different islands and some of them are quite mountainous. And so if you wanted to translate a message across an island, uh, people, there were certain whistles that were basically translations of phrases. And so you'd go to a ridge, you'd whistle, it would carry to the person who heard it here, then it would go to this ridge, and then it would go to this ridge. And that was, it was, it was a it's dying out, but it was a special whistling language that basically served the same role as semaphore. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. Is this a, a language you learned any of? 
Uh, no, I was not in the Canary Islands long enough to learn it, but there's only apparently just a handful of people left who uh, still know how to do it. So it's, it's uh, I hope somebody, I have not, not come across a documentary about it, but I hope somebody at least, you know, finds a way to preserve that. So if it is totally lost, we have some idea of what it was. Since you brought us back to languages, I'm going to go back to it a little bit. If, per se, you did speak a lot of languages, do you have a technique that, that would have helped you learn all of these languages, or do you just have an insanely quick mind? Uh, an insanely quick mind. I'm not sh I don't think that's it, but um, I can grasp underlying patterns, because that's what, that's what language is. That's what math and that's what music is all about. Is I just discerning the underlying patterns, you know, being able to hear a song and saying, okay, this is in four, four, uh, it's in this key. And I know this chord progression because it's going to follow something. And then, you know, languages are like that. It's like, okay, I know this construction. I know how to say this in this language. It works, you know, so my technique has always been to look for patterns. And once you see the pattern, um, you know, things like, I think when people approach languages, it's easy for, to get just bogged down on how much stuff is being thrown at you. It's like, and you start trying to memorize things versus understanding their pattern. So you're, learn, you're trying to memorize words and then you're saying, oh, this is how you say I love you in this language. I don't understand it, but at least I can say the sounds. If you step back and say, you know, there's a pattern here and let me look for that first. And once you get the pattern of a language or the rhythm of a language, Vocabulary is just like, you know, adding numbers in, in math, right? It's just like, you know, there's just going to be more numbers. And so um, learning, I think discerning patterns is the mo is for me the best way to just sit down and look at, at language. Because once you understand the underlying structure, everything else is just stuff you add on top of it. So it, it's just like, you know, if you're a musician, if you, if you are great on guitar, piano is not that hard to learn because it's like, okay, I know how to make chords. I know what chords are. So I just have to figure out how to translate it from, you know, this to this language works the same way. I got you. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, and you keep bringing it back to music. And uh, the more I've been reading, the more I've, I've learned uh, music at a young age really shapes your, your brain to be able to do math and language and yeah. almost anything else. You can think of music like a language. It's a, it's a form of communication. You know, it's, it's funny how, if you don't play an instrument, it's harder to appreciate, but if you watch someone, um, you know, playing guitar, for instance, whether it's, you know, flamenco or a classical or, you know, just the lead guitar player in a heavy metal band, watch their facial expressions. Um, because you can see that they're trying to find notes that actually say what they're feeling. So it's, if, if you, that's where, you know, cause I've had people say, you know, why, why are their faces always so contorted when they're playing and things? It's like, you know, if you play an instrument, you get it. Cause you're, 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 you're trying, you've got your, what you've got is a piece of metal that you have your finger on and you're trying to give it feeling like it's talking. And, and, you know, once you understand that and you watch people play, you can, you can understand why music is itself a language. Well, I, I have to say thank you. This was a, a super interesting interview. I had a lot of fun researching you and watching your videos. So uh, please well, I'm glad you did. Up. I'm glad you found that stuff. I, I actually have never Googled myself. I just can't bring myself to do it. So I'm always amused when other people do. And this has been great fun. I appreciate, I appreciate you taking it. This, this has been great fun. So, so thanks so much for, for having me here. Thank you for sharing your stories, Darren. It has been a tornado of topics and discussions. Check out Professor Darren Zook at dczook.com. And don't miss his FAQ page, because it had me crying in funnies on the floor. So I, please, go read it. And if you want more no-nonsense advice or free one-on-one -on -one mentorship in any area, 
from resume writing to your mental health, send us a contact request at dweebsglobal.org uh, and we will pair you with a mentor. Tune in next Tuesday for an interview with a man you know as an award-winning screenwriter and author, but whose second scene is in training jujitsu and coaching wrestling. So I will see you all next week on the Second Scene Podcast. And scene. <laughs> <laughs>